Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me today on the Class War Battlefield podcast. Please do me the honor of supporting this work that I am doing. I've been doing this work now for free on your behalf for, my God, 11 years. 5, 10, 20, 50. If you can afford it, please do cash at me at dollar sign CWB podcast CWB podcast cash app it CWB podcast also also hit me up on PayPal CWB podcast all the way across the board y'all help me out help me out help me out thank you for donating and enjoy the show Residents of Buffalo, New York, gathered at vigil Sunday to mourn the 10 people killed on Saturday when a white supremacist wearing body armor and carrying an assault rifle opened fire on a supermarket in a predominantly black neighborhood. Of the 13 shoppers and store workers shot in the assault, 11 were black. Buffalo resident Grady Lewis witnessed the shooting. I was standing right across the street, and I heard a shot that I knew wasn't a firecracker. And I looked up, and I seen a smoke, and a guy just shooting, shooting across in the parking lot. And then I seen the security guard run inside the store, and when he ran inside the store, the other guy bent down and was just shooting inside the store, and I heard like at least 20 shots inside the store, and I didn't have a phone on me, so I was just yelling and screaming for people to call the police, and I looked over, I seen a woman on the ground, I seen a man on the ground, I seen another woman on the ground um, behind the um, gate. Police are calling the massacre a domestic terror attack. They've arrested an 18-year-old suspect, who reportedly live-streamed the massacre on the video streaming service Twitch. The site took the video down within minutes, but the footage continues to circulate among white supremacists online. The suspect left behind a racist manifesto that included a plan to target a mainly black neighborhood. Investigators say he'd researched the area and drove about 200 miles from his home in Conklin, New York, before arriving a day in advance to conduct reconnaissance. The manifesto heavily plagiarized a screed left behind by the white supremacists who killed 51 people at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, in 2019. The manifesto refers to the Great Replacement, a racist conspiracy theory promoted by far-right media figures like Tucker Carlson of Fox News and embraced by some Republicans, including New York Congressmember Elise Stefanik. Prosecutors say the shooter purchased the Bushmaster XM-15 semi-automatic rifle used in the law assault lawfully from a licensed gun dealer in his hometown after he passed a background check. That's despite the fact that the suspect previously threatened a mass shooting at his high school the year before. He allegedly modified the rifle to use high-capacity magazines that are banned in New York State. President Biden spoke from the White House Sunday as Buffalo mourned the attack. We're still gathering the facts, but already the Justice Department has stated publicly that it is investigating the matter as a hate crime, racially motivated act of white supremacy and violent extremism. As they do, 
We must all work together to address the hate that remains a stain on the soul of America. The hearts are heavy once again, but a resolve must never, ever waver. The White House says President Biden will visit Buffalo Tuesday to meet with victims' families. Journalist Madison Carter's tweet eulogizing one of the victims, Pearlie Young, went viral. Carter wrote, quote, Pearlie Young, 77, was killed today in Buffalo shopping for groceries. For 25 years, she ran a pantry where every Saturday she fed people in Central Park. Every Saturday. She loved singing, dancing, and being with family. She was a mother, a grandma, and missionary, gone too soon. The other named victims are former Buffalo Police Lieutenant Aaron Salter, who was an off-duty guard. Also killed were Ruth Whitfield, Catherine Cat Massey, Hayward Patterson, Celestine Cheney, Roberta Drury, Geraldine Talley, Andre McNeil, and Margus Morrison. We go now to Buffalo, New York, where we're joined by India Walton, former Buffalo mayoral candidate, longtime community activist, now a senior advisor for senior projects for Working Families Party and a senior strategic organizer with Roots Action. India, welcome back to Democracy Now! Right now, you're just a few blocks from the grocery store where the shooting took place. Can you describe your response over the weekend and what's happening in your community? Um, there are a lot of heavy hearts in Buffalo right now. <clears throat> Details are still emerging, Amy. And as a matter of fact, I didn't know that Kat Massey was one of the victims. Um, I started my organizing career right here in the Fruit Belt, and, and Kat was a pillar of this community and um, a longtime supporter of mine in the work that I did, a woman who wrote a $10 check every month to support our community land trust. And these are some of the folks that we lost in this very horrific and tragic incident. First of all, my condolences on this horror that has befallen your community, this act of domestic terrorism that has taken so many, including the mother, the oldest victim is the mother of the retired fire commissioner. Vigils were held in Uvalde, Texas, Wednesday, a day after an 18-year-old gunman shot dead 19 students and two teachers at the Robb Elementary School. It was the deadliest school shooting in the United States in a decade. All the victims were in the same fourth-grade classroom. On Wednesday, CNN's Anderson Cooper interviewed Angel Garza, whose 10-year-old daughter, Amari Jo Garza, died in the attack. I'm a med aide, so when I arrived on the scene, they still had kids inside. They started bringing the kids out, and I was aiding assistance. One little girl was just, just covered in blood, head to toe. Like, I thought she was injured. I asked her what was wrong, and she said she's okay. She was hysterical, saying that they shot her best friend, that they killed her best friend, and she's not breathing, and that she was trying to call the cops. And I asked the little girl the name, and she's... <laughs> And she told me, she said, Amory. She just turned 10. Her birthday was on the 10th, May the 10th, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. You had a party for her. We had, we just gathered a family and had a dinner. She just got her phone. She'd been wanting a phone for so long, and we finally got it for her. 
<laughs> she just tried to call the police. She tried to. She actually tried to call. Yes, I got confirmation from two of the students in her classroom that she was just trying to call the authorities. And I guess he just shot her. How do you look at this girl and shoot her? <laughs> oh, my baby. How do you shoot my baby? Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Those are the words of Angel Garza, father of Amarillo Garza, who was shot dead in her fourth-grade classroom in Uvalde, along with 18 classmates and two teachers. Amarillo is just 10 years old. As mourning continues across the nation, Republicans are facing increasing criticism for opposing any new gun control measures. On Wednesday, Democratic Texas gubernatorial candidate, former Congressmember Beto O'Rourke, interrupted a news conference held in Uvalde by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Listen closely. I will uh, pass the mic to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Sit down. You're out of you're out of line and an embarrassment. Sit down. I don't believe this. The next shooting is right now, and you are doing nothing. No. He needs to get his ass out of here. This isn't the place to talk to so This is totally predictable. Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you're out of line. Please leave this auditorium. After Beto O'Rourke, the former presidential candidate and congressman, was escorted after the out of the Uvalde High School auditorium, where the press conference was held, he spoke to reporters. Because the governor of the state of Texas, the most powerful man in the state, chose to do nothing. He went to Santa Fe High School after kids were killed in their classrooms, told the parents he would do something. He did nothing. He came to my hometown of El Paso after 23 people were slaughtered. He said he was going to do something. He did nothing. In fact, the only thing he did was make it easier to buy a gun. The only thing he did was make it easier to carry a gun in public. And he bragged about the fact that there would be no background check, no training, no vetting whatsoever. That was Texas gubernatorial candidate Beto O'Rourke speaking in Uvalde on Wednesday. President Biden's expected to visit the town in the coming days. To look more at the gun crisis in America, we're joined by Robin Lloyd, managing director of Giffords, a gun violence prevention organization led by former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, who in 2011 survived being shot in the head by a gunman who killed six people and injured 12 others at a constituent event in a parking lot in Tucson, Arizona and has since become a leading gun control advocate. Robin Lloyd, welcome to Democracy Now! Um, first, your response to what took place and the fact that the U.S. is alone in the world for these mass shootings, in schools or other places. The fact that of every 100 people in this country, there are 120 guns, more civilian guns in this country than people. There's nothing like this anywhere in the world, if you can talk about this. I completely agree. This is a uniquely American problem, um, and it's happening um, with such frequency and such devastation 
uh, it's almost hard to wrap your mind around. Um, as you know, the tragedy in Uvalde on Tuesday was the third deadliest school shooting in this country, second or third only to Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting and the Virginia Tech shooting. Um, it's also the fourth um, deadliest shooting in Texas of the um, most deadliest shootings in recent history um, in this country. Uh, four out of 10 have occurred in Texas in recent years. Um, so there's definitely something specific to the United States and our uh, lack of strong gun laws and our patchwork of gun laws that we have across different states um, that allow this to keep happening in addition to the sheer number of firearms that exist in this country and how easy it is um, to access them. Welcome to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay. In a previous interview with Dr. Gerald Horn, we discussed how guns and God and country are all part of a religious faith of the far right in the United States. The uh, idea that guns and the ind individual right to defend oneself is, is more an act of faith than an act of logic when one actually works through the arguments of, of how one actually achieves public safety. But there's a reason why, or re some reasons why, I think, that a lot of ordinary people can believe in such a faith, because part of that faith is a recognition of the decay of values in the society, the, the chaos in society, the violence in society. Uh, and, and a lot of that is attributed by such people who believe in, the, in these things to the Democratic Party and uh, the, the intellectual elites as they see them, but the, the elites of the Democratic Party. And I frankly think there's something to that argument. And now joining me to discuss that again is Dr. Gerald Horn. Uh, Dr. Horn holds the John J. and Rebecca Moore Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. His latest book is The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America. Thanks for joining me again, Gerald. Thank you. When one looks at what's happened to a large extent in popular culture, uh, certainly what's happened in terms of the growing inequality gap, uh, in terms of economics, um, ordinary working people who had some sense of stability from an economy that used to be far more reliable, and with that, ideological and institutional beliefs that seem far more reliable. And a lot of that seems up in the air now, and people feel very threatened, uh, both economically and, and, and in terms of their core beliefs. They feel like the society doesn't believe in much of anything anymore. Um, and, and, and that leads, I think, leads people to, with, with some legitimacy to think that a lot of the leadership of the Democratic Party and their promises are such hypocrisy and that some of this violence needs to be laid on, on their doorstep. So when, when the, ch the charge for gun control is led by that leadership of the Democratic Party, it feels hypocritical because they, they're not dealing with some of the conditions that lead to so much mental illness, so much psychosis in the society. And, and the numbers of these mass shootings are certainly increasing. Uh, so the, this feeling that society is spinning out of control um, and that the Democratic Party leadership has a lot to do with that. And of course, that gets exaggerated because it's not like when the Republicans are in power, it's better. But this all gets manipulated a lot. Anyway, what are your thoughts, Dr. Horn? Well, 
I would say that there are profound sociological reasons for what is occurring with regards to mass shootings. First of all, consider the fact that overwhelmingly and disproportionately, those who pull the trigger are men. We should not take that for granted. We should instead seek to analyze why that might be the case. And it does not take an expert in sociology to quickly arrive at the conclusion that many men in this country have been unsettled by the changing role of gender in this country, by the enhanced role and authority of women, by the rise of feminism. There hasn't been an adequate ventilation and discussion of this particular question. And as a result, it has left many men without any kind of understanding of what's going on in society in which they're operating, leading men, as the saying goes, many men at least, to cling with bitterness to their guns. Secondly, with regard to foreign policy, uh, I find it quite striking that a central aspect of US foreign policy in recent decades has not only been war, that is to say, settling political and sociological problems from the barrel of a gun, be it Libya or Iraq or Afghanistan, but also helping to fuel a certain kind of religious zealotry, particularly in pre-1979 Afghanistan, and not least in pre-2011 Libya. And then, of course, that particular phenomenon come home, comes home to roost with the killing in Texas, uh, engineered by Nadal Hassan, the killing at the Pulse nightclub, for example. And that general idea of settling political and sociological problems through the barrel of a gun should not be thought of as just an exemplar of religious zealots, such as uh, Nadal Hassan in Texas. It's part of the US culture, as noted in our previous segment, going back to European settlement in the 1600s. Well, look at Hollywood movies and television shows. Uh, the number of movies and shows that glorify the most uh, outlandish amounts of killing and slaughtering, and uh, you know, that's not new. We've had decades of that kind of culture uh, developing. Uh, and and I, I, again, I go to ordinary working people that buy into this kind of gun, God, gun, and country ideology. It's a legitimate concern when they look at what the kind of stuff that Hollywood produces, how, how the level of violence of it. But I also think uh, one of the points that, that the NRA woman made had a kernel of truth to it. I mean, in the, uh, conf the town hall CNN organized, um, is that there, according to her, there were 39 points where the young man that did the shooting was in connection with the state or social agencies in some ways, whether it was the police force or some kind of social agencies, and they kept kind of diagnose, diagnosing him as having mental illness. They, they saw some of his uh, very uh, threatening posts on social media. We have to start, number one, following up on red flags. 39 times in the past year, it was law enforcement or it was social services that went to this individual's home. But, but the, the irony of her statement is she supports, and the NRA and that right, precisely supports the kind of politics that cuts back on social services, that cuts back on mental health care, that cuts back on public, uh, public health interventions. 
I mean, the, the, the lack of, of interventions in the schools, which is partly a resource question and partly a lack of uh, agenda, but the number of severely depressed, disturbed kids that simply go through school. Now, most of them don't shoot anybody, but often they shoot themselves. I mean, suicide rates are also skyrocketing. It's not just about mass shootings. Uh, you know, why is there such an opioid? academic this this society is sick and and the people who only focus on gun control and here again I would point to the leadership of the Democratic Party and much of the sort of liberal class that think gun control is the answer without dealing with the issue of the rot in the society that is so screwing up people's heads that you know, massive drug addiction deep depression high suicide rates. I mean, talk about that healthy society. And yes, of course, let's also talk about gun control, but not to talk about the rest. That's just a, that's, that is a hypocrisy. Well, first of all, with regard to Hollywood, it's well known, point A, that that particular industry in film and television has a, a, a more than normalized complement of executives at the top who tend to be campaign donors to the Democratic Party. And point B, as your comment suggested, the cultural products that they produce tend to glorify violence. And then point C is that the ratings agencies are much more willing to censor, if you like, scenes of sexuality as opposed to scenes of violence and let her rip when it comes to scenes of violence. Then there's the question of mental health, which is quite tricky, because on the one hand, it would be a mistake, as the Republicans are tending to do, to lay, lay this latest tragedy at the doorstep of mental illness. Uh, as suggested, there are many people who have mental problems who do not necessarily pick up an AR-15 and march into a public school and mow people down. But at the same time, the Republicans are pleading ins inconsistent counts, as the lawyers like to say, because on the one hand, they're trying to point the finger of accusation at mental health. On the other hand, they're defunding government programs that address mental health. And so obviously they can't have it both ways. They are pleading inconsistent accounts and certainly they need to be held to account for their inconsistent hypocrisy. And uh, th this thing that this NRA woman says at the town hall where she over and over again called this young man, the shooter, a monster. He's a monster. I don't believe that this insane monster should have ever been able to obtain a firearm. This, this, this monster carrying bullets to school, carrying knives to school. No, he's another child of ours. He's one of our kids who, uh, he's, he wasn't born a monster. You know, he, if what he did was monstrous, not if, what he did was monstrous. But how does he become that kind of monster? She doesn't want to, de she doesn't want to deal with that whatsoever. She wants to demonize him. So it's virtually back to this good and evil argument. Somehow he's an evil seed. And, us, and the good, God, guns, country. We need to go get these monsters. And of course, to do that, we need our guns. Well, I think what you're saying is another problem as well, which is that it's well known that in this country, when there are prickly, prickly and tricky 
political and sociological problems, there is a tendency not to analyze the society, the soil from which these problems grow, but to denounce individual praxis. You see that in particular with regard to what happens in the black community, for example. That is to say, rather than denouncing white supremacy or the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, ongoing racism, etc., there is a laser-like focus on the imagined frailties and debilities, for example, of single black mothers. And you see that as not necessarily isolated with regard to the black community. You see this also with regard to this question of mass shootings, rather than do a historical analysis of European settlement and colonialism and dispossession of Native Americans, which would then lead to an indictment of society, it's much easier to affix individual blame on a particular teenager as is happening in Florida as we speak. And just to pick up on something you said, uh, in terms of the sort of history of this ideology of the, the right to have a gun, and how connected it is with, with the, the, uh, the God and country and so on. It wasn't all that long ago, it was considered a right by a lot of Southerners, white Southerners, it was a right to lynch black people. Oh, sure. I mean, once again, there is a reluctance to dig too deeply with regard to the nettlesome problems of this society. You see this as you have suggested a moment or two ago with regard to some of the liberals on Capitol Hill. That is to say, when there is a kind of tragedy that has just unfolded in Florida, the mantra is, that's not who we are. That is to say, this is not a problem of these United States of America and the kind of society that has developed over the decades and centuries. Now, if you take that particular point of view, that leaves you with an individual analysis of looking at the real and imagined problems of individuals, which fundamentally does not get you anywhere because it does not lead to profound and sweeping changes of society, which is so desperately needed in this country. Yeah, it leads to more shootings in schools. Thanks very much for joining us, Joe. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on The Real News Network. storm is rising against the privileged minority of the earth. This is why I say it's liberty or it's death. It's freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. This is an NBC News hotline special report. We're at a turning point in the history of this nation. We need to stand for freedom. There's an escalating authoritarianism and even a creeping fascism. Freedom it's precious. If we don't fight for it, you lose it. This much is clear. We must rebel. This is our country. We have always lived in it. We were happy. Then you came. We have to protect ourselves. We have to save our country. We have to fight for what is ours. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am your brother, Brian Meredith, and this...
is a Class War Battlefield podcast episode. I already had, um, I was working on this week's two-parter release when I heard about the latest mass gun shooting at a college, and it took a day or two, that took about a day actually, before my mind started formulating some things that I want to say, and so because this is timely, I want to go through this with you. Let's begin with the obvious. The idea that there is a gun debate in this country. There is not a gun debate in the United States of America. There is the imposition onto what polls say are the majority of people in this country a way of existing that constantly creates terror and fear and anxiety. This is actually a point that we don't talk about. We haven't talked about it for over a century. Now, a century ago, the atmosphere that was creating anxiety and fear and um, terror was linked wholeheartedly to the brutal reality of capitalism and the brutal reality of segregation, which I've often stated You know, white people at the lower ends of the society act the way they do because they cannot act that way towards the actual people, and they have been conditioned not to act that way, towards the actual people who are doing them harm, which is the wealthier people. But I digress. In the present day, we have not calculated... There is, I haven't, I haven't heard of any studies, I've only looked a little bit, but I have not heard of any studies that actually try to calculate the misery, the uncertainty, the mental cloudiness and fogginess that has occurred over the last really 20 years plus since mass school shootings became an issue not for black people because it's been an issue for black folks in the inner cities for over 30 years now. But for white people, we haven't done that work. And we haven't done that work, I suspect, because, and look, let me just say, I guarantee there's studies out there that I haven't seen. I haven't seen everything, Lord knows. I haven't seen close to everything. So it's probably hidden away somewhere. I guarantee they're out there. But they haven't been publicized. But see, if we start to do those type of research studies and making them public, we have to then start having a conversation about domestic terrorization. Not terrorism, but terrorization and anxiety 
based on indecisive politicians who prefer more to bow to special interests than to the will of the majority of so-called voters. Because look, I don't by any stretch of the imagination think that as many Republicans as answer, you know, yes, I'm in favor of good gun control, you know, sensible gun control during a survey, actually vote like that. I'm not. But I'm going to play devil's advocate and say they're sincere. That means Republicans should not be standing in the way of sensible gun control. Yet they are. Which brings me to one of the primary points that I want to hit on for this episode. A very important one, actually. We do not talk about the responsibilities in democracy in this society. And I suspect we don't talk about responsibilities in in democracy because when you start to really contextualize what the average citizen's job is, not the consumer's job, because a lot of these entities want to now see you not as citizens, because citizens have a right, have rights, should I say, and have, have, have a right to petition their government and to force their government into realignment for their purposes, but as consumers who do not have those same rights. I suspect the reason we don't have those deep conversations is because we start to contextualize what a citizen's job is. Citizens are going to start to feel empowered. Because with with that conversation would come a recognition that many citizens, including a lot of so-called conservatives, have been derelict of, of duty. And that dereliction of duty would be corrected very quickly because very few people, very few people, once they discover what roles they're supposed to take as a citizen, decide not to take those roles seriously. Today, though, I'm going to talk to you about um, one of the responsibilities of citizenship in a democracy. And it has to do... It has actually a lot of um, weight when it comes to such things as gun control, health care, things like that, that people need to survive and to not only survive, but to prosper. You can't prosper in an atmosphere where there's terror, where there's uncertainty, where there's doubt where there's fear and anxiety. You can't, you can't prosper in those places. This is well known, even before Maslow's hierarchy came out. And so, one of the primary roles of governing institutions is to create atmospheres and environments where that terror is minimized, that anxiety is minimized, where Hopefully, none of that exists because scarcity isn't a realistic thing. Prosperity is. Poverty is done away with. Things like that. That is really part of the role of government. 
a government's job is to alleviate poverty. But let me not get into that. One of the responsibilities of citizenship is, and I'm just simply going to call it kind of the law of correction. The law of correction. And the idea behind this law is that you see a problem or you see a destination, someplace where you want to get to. Let's take gun um, control, because that's what we're really talking about here. Gun control legislation or gun control policy. That's the destination we want to get to. Now, what correction says is, it says that, look, the citizens aren't always going to get it right, and the, and the governing systems won't always get it right either. So correction say, look, it's trial and error. If something works, you keep doing it. If it doesn't, you correct. You correct the mistake, keep moving forward, keep collecting your data, keep perfecting what you're doing. Sometimes you have to course correct quickly. Sometimes you have to course correct in a large manner. Sometimes it's minor tweaks. But the role of the citizen especially with their civic organizations, and a lot of places don't have civic organizations. A lot of conservatives have built civic organizations to be bulwark for what they want to do. And what they want to do isn't necessarily what society needs them to do, but that's a whole other thing. What corrections does not allow, though, what the law of corrections does not allow, though, is that you, once when it is proven that what you're doing is not working, you cannot rest back on it and say, yeah, but I still think it'll work. Mm-mm. You can't do that. Because there is a natural tendency in nature to course correct, even when there is something that is in the way. One of the things I like to do in my spare time is go into nature and just observe nature. And it's so great when you're in an undisturbed area. Sure, people might walk through it and things like that. But you get to see the brilliance of nature. And you get to see the brilliance of this law. And what you see is that like trees, trees, like a, a tree will fall onto another tree as it's growing, and the tree will literally grow around it. Course correction. You'd see this with plants. But I love the, 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 the tree metaphor is really good because you can, I mean, that is dynamic. You see it in real time. Now imagine if that tree was like a lot of gun owners who refuse to acknowledge that what is what they've been doing for the last 20 plus years ain't working. Imagine that. That tree wouldn't be able to readjust itself to get to the point where it could go around that obstacle and reach its potential height. 
Now, I'm sympathetic. I grew up in an area with people with guns. And the when I was a child, the only problem with gun violence that was had was in Rochester, New York, and Syracuse, New York, among black folks. So I grew up with a perception that one group of people understood how to use guns, and one group of people didn't. It's a messed up perspective, but that's what I thought. It wasn't until I was in my mid-twenties when I, you know, went to college, started doing some more research on the issue, and I'm like, wait a minute. These people are killing themselves too, but we don't hear about it. These people are messing up with guns too, but we don't really hear about it. These people love their guns, but wow, there's an issue here. I mean, I was in high school when Columbine happened. I was, I was, I was riveted by the coverage of it. I could not believe that this had happened. And as I watched, you know, over the last 12, 13, 14 years, I began to realize something as I started talking to people around my very red area. That at the end of the day, these people love their guns. But I didn't understand why. Now, I think Obama was on to something with people clinging to their guns because of poverty and other things. Absolutely. It, look, if you have a problem getting food and you have to go out and kill something so your family can eat, you're going to do it. And you're going to need a gun to do it. But I think also, I think also, that it's not just that reason why they cling to the guns. Man, God bless the people who I went to school with, because they at least, they told me the truth. And, and, and a friend of mine that I um, went to school with, Sammy Hillsinger, who used to hang out with a lot of black kids, he was a very pasty white kid. Um, him and I were talking one day and he was like, you know, I just don't get it. And I'm like, what? And he goes, how is it that you black folks ain't, ain't overly mad at us? I, I just, I don't get it. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, if I was black, I would be insanely pissed off at white people all the time. And I'm like, yeah, we, we aren't, we, well, that's not who we are. We ain't got, like, y'all ain't that important to us. Y'all ain't that important to our existence. You know what I'm saying? Y'all just ain't. So, yeah, but I, that's what I don't get. And he smiled at me and he goes, see, I don't believe it. I can't believe that you aren't mad at us for the stuff that we've done to you. And he's like, I, just, I can't do it because there's no how in the way you can't be. And I looked at him and I go, okay, let me ask you something, man. Just... Just for giggles, explain this to me. Think about this. What if we aren't mad at you? Like, what if I'm right? What if we aren't? What would that mean to you? And he kind of thinks for a minute. By the way, I was in 10th grade when this happened. And he goes, oh, I don't know. And I go, well, think harder than that. So he thought for a minute. 
And I go, what would that mean for you guys? What would it mean for white people if we weren't mad at you? And he kind of looks at me, you know, like with a, with this sheepish smile on his face. And he's like, that we've done a lot of stuff to you and we didn't need to do it because you weren't mad at us. And I'm like, yeah, and what else would it mean? And he was like, that we're not very good people. And I'm like, yeah, yes, yes. And that's that's the thing that most white people don't want to want to view. So they keep saying that we have there has to be something wrong with us because if it's something wrong with them, then they got to deal with it. And they don't want to deal with it because they don't want to deal with it. Now at the time I didn't understand the history of Europe as well as I do now, things like that. So it 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 changed It changed his perspective of it. But you know how he ended the conversation? Yeah, but I really just don't think that you guys are not mad at us, man. I just I can't see it. And I'm like, see, and that's the denial. <laughs> that's the denial. Look, ladies and gentlemen, let's be let's be clear. We are we're having a lot of conversations about um racism, Black Lives Matter and things like that. Did you ever stop to think that it is the reason also why white folks cling to their guns is because one settler colonialism you want to be able to put the put put the indigenous colonials in their place if need be and two because there is this deep fear that like one day black folks are going to have enough and they coming for you I mean God bless, God bless South Park. Back after Zimmerman was acquitted, they produced an episode called World War Z, World War Zimmerman, and it's surrounding this idea that Eric Cartman has put into his own mind that Tolkien is a token black, by the way, which they changed his name years later because it was token, T-O-K-E-N. Um, that token is this ticking time bomb waiting to go off and after white people. And they do, like, South Park, up till that time period, did not handle race well. They were horrible with it. I mean, terrible with it. But that was the first episode that I ever watched where they tackled race. And I was like, oh, I think something's happening here. These, the, 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 what's going? What happened? These libertarian guys. What happened? That, though, I think is part of why these folks cling to their guns. Now, at the same time, when people talk about, oh, well, there's always been this rich gun culture, they don't tend to talk about why there's always been a rich gun culture. When you're taking land away from people, you're forcing people to be enslaved on that land, yeah, you might need some kind of armament to stop those who you're robbing from coming back and taking things. Obviously, oftentimes you just kill all of them so they can't come back. 
and to stop those who you are enslaving from making mincemeat out of you. And some of them still did. Which I have to imagine still looms in the psyche of a lot of white people in these areas. But I could be wrong. Now, this is this is going to be one of the hardest things I think that I'm ever going to say on this podcast. And it is one of those things that um, I have thought about for a long time. And it goes back to the law of corrections. And it's the idea that people, re- people would refuse to learn the lessons associated with the mistakes that they have made. So, what with the law of correcting, or law of correction, once when something is deemed not to work, you have to go in and fix it. If you refuse to fix it, and the problem worsens, the consequences negatively mount. Because look, consequence, it's funny, consequence is not a, it's often promoted as a negative concept. It is actually about sequencing things according to cause and effect. If those those negative consequences are mounting, though, then you lose your privilege to input solutions because you're making the um, the problem worse. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That opens up a Pandora box, man, because once you start saying you lose your privilege to... I'm not saying that you lose your privilege to vote. What happens is that consensus begins to form, and the heartbeat of um, democracy is consensus. If what you continue to propose has been tried, it's been deemed a failure because the negative consequences are mounting, the consensus determines whether or not you get to still input while they're forming consensus. Now, if the consensus comes back and says, look, unless you get off your horse that you rode in on, you can't, you know, add anything to this conversation, to this consensus that's building, um, then th- you lose your privilege to, to, to input in the solutions for that thing. If they tell you, you can put ideas in, but we're going to have to discuss them on the floor, blah, blah, blah. And if it becomes obvious that you're stalling what we're trying to do, then again, you are no longer allowed to input. That becomes the reality of the consensus assembly. What makes this all possible is... Not only 
that there is the law of corrections, but there are myriad laws and principles that help to formulate the ideas of democracy. And not only of democracy, but how democracy should play out on the micro stage, that's at the community level, all the way up through the um, domestic national stage and the corporate or uh, what really is the authoritarian cooperatives stage. And it's funny because co-ops by nature should not be authoritarian, but when we talk about corporations, what we are talking about a it is literally a authoritarian cooperative. We are talking about an authoritarian hierarchical cooperative that is antithetical to human nature. But it's what it is. These principles are numerous. These laws are numerous. I have um, I've read books from the late 1800s, early 1900s, where they try to talk about these laws. To my, to my greatest appreciation of the things that I've read, the people who seem to have the greatest understanding and inner grasping of the principles and laws of democracy are not capitalists. They're social workers. Socialists, communists, anarchists. Not modern anarchists. A lot of these guys are just paid shills for the government and for corporations. Unionizers who, who have a more radical tilt to them. They understand more so than capitalists what democracy is supposed to be and to an extent what these laws are. Because the laws governing a democracy, the laws governing a democracy isn't just about consensus. It's, just, it's not just about dealing with how people um, actuate policy into the environment and into the institutional environments that crisscross the entire society. It's deeper than that. It's how do you look at the environments. How do you interact with the environment? How is, how is wisdom and knowledge progressed through these environments from generation to generation and beyond? There are so many laws and principles that we don't think about. That is, it's, it's a wonder that we can think of democracy as a functional reality at all. The same thing with the republic. There are, there are principles and laws to a republic which help to govern it, which help you to see it, and ultimately which create the circumstances which turn it into typically an authoritarian regime if it's not properly balanced. And that balance is essential. 
Which brings me back to the gun debate. That balance is essential. There really is, and Chris Hedges was the first one to identify this like 10 years back. There really is this march, this march to death. And while I think part of it is definitely rooted in the realities of um, capitalism, I also think and believe that part of it is associated with mutually assured destruction mentality, which white folks have done a great job of imposing throughout the world. White folks need to be in charge. And when they do not feel like they are in charge, they do damage. Most of this damage is psychic, psychological, emotional, um, uh, spiritual, to the people who are around them. Then it jumps to physical, and there's a scale in that. It starts with breaking things in their home, beating their significant others, both men and women, beating those who are smaller than them, children, pets. Trying to beat people outside the home, that was more acceptable, you know, 30, 40 years ago than it is today. And then injuring people outside the home deliberately. And then finally killing people outside the home. This is not an indictment per se. But it is a recognition that when we speak of mental illness, the crisis of mental illness, we try to constrict it to simple things, poverty, the increase of poverty, which I actually think is something needs, that needs to be talked about more, but with a sympathetic ear, because Lord knows when black folks were enmeshed in poverty, not of our own making, 30, 40 years ago, and the crime rate went up when the CIA pumped drugs into our communities, Nobody wanted to hear that it was poverty. In fact, one, one, one former first lady talked about bringing them to heel. And I ain't got nothing against the former first lady. I voted for her. But you didn't want to talk about how we got there, but I bet you want to talk about how white people got here. We do need to talk about the, the mental anguish of poverty. But we need to do it for all people. We also need to have a discussion about the spiritual consequences of poverty. There is no positive spiritual consequence when it comes to poverty. It's all negative. 
What is the role of depression and anxiety in owning guns? How does, how does having a gun affect your anxiety, your depression? How does it impact your ability to interact with people? Especially when you can carry it around. Which, by the way, does not have any more... There is no more defenders that can say, Yeah, but I need a gun in case some of these people get out of hand. They're, no. Uh-uh. No. All of, these, all of these mass shootings, where, where have you been? Oh, well, it's because I can't carry... No. I guarantee... Do you really not think that all of these mass shootings, there hasn't been one or two people with firearms who did exactly what the police officers in Uvalde did? They didn't run towards the gunmen. They ran away from them. The, I, have to, I have to muzzle myself when I talk about Uvalde. I know I didn't produce an episode last year about Uvalde. I I actually did produce two or three episodes on Uvalde, but all of them resulted in me almost screaming at the not at the top of my lungs. But with some fear against those people. <laughs> it made me really pissed off at this idea of that policing is anything but what we know it to be. These people ran. They didn't run towards the gunmen. They are not going to sacrifice their life for the people that they don't know, for their family, sure. For the people they know and love, sure. But for folks they don't know, come on. These people are, these people are, 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 are in no hurry to be a hero. To be eulogized. They run away from the gunfire. There's no more arguments when it comes to this, y'all. We need to have discussions. We need to have discussions. On what children think about guns. What they think about gun violence. What they think about gun control. Why they think it. Oh, well, you just want to do that so you can propagandize them against guns. No. Uh-uh. Mm-mm. We need to have studies with children, discussions about morals in guns. That's the key. That's the goal. And then we need to have some discussions with right-wingers about real sovereignty. Because as I told a friend of mine who was like, oh yeah, well, you're going to take my gun out of my cold dead hands. I'm like, okay, where do you live? He told me. I go, oh, I know where that's at. That's in the country, right? You're surrounded by a bunch of white people, right? He was like, yeah. And I go, you ever go to Syracuse? Yeah, periodically. 
I'm like, do you think you should be able to carry your gun into the Syracuse, into Syracuse and any place like that? And he's like, yeah, yes, it should be my right to do so. And I'm like, really? Because what if the people in Syracuse believe it's their right to tell you you can't do it? Oh, well, they're infringing on my rights. I'm like, really? Really? So if a community gets together and says, you can't come into our community doing that, they're infringing on your rights. Yeah, because I have a right to carry my gun. I'm like, okay. I said, you're in your community. You like your community. I go, um, I probably imagine you guys have a statue that during the weekday, you can't play music loudly outside. Probably after 9 o'clock. He was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. My so-and-so works on the board of this. And yeah, 9 o'clock. And I go, well, New York State says it's like 10 or 11. And he was like, so? And I go, so you get a couple of families from Syracuse moving out to where you're at. And they want to play their music loudly outside until 10 or 11. Well, the local statue, no, actually the local statue, nothing. The state statue would trump yours. Well, yeah, but they're going to have to prove that. And that's going to mean they're going to court and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, ah, so, so, ho, ho, ho. When you want to control something somebody else is doing in your community, it's your right to do so, even though they have the right to do something completely else, completely different. Oh, well, that's different. No, it's not. No, it's not. You want to walk into a community with your gun, and that community tells you you can't have it. You are infringing on their rights. Just as you would say that anyone playing their music at 10 o'clock when the local statute says 9 or 11 o'clock is infringing on your rights. You can't have it both ways. Well, I can. But see, and that's the problem. <laughs> well, it's never going to happen anyway, he said after that. I'm like, yeah. Because you really do believe that you have the right. And by the way, this guy's white. And he's actually a good guy. I have nothing negative to say about him being a good guy. But the gun, quote, debate reveals the psychoses of a lot of white people. And the psychoses at the heart of everything done is this notion that they have a right to do what they want. Now, granted, there are many white people who are like, yeah, screw that. You know, ban the guns, control the guns. But, unfortunately, as with most things, I believe they are a minority. They are a minority. Gun violence. And I just actually put up a piece on um, gun violence and karma, if I remember correctly. If I didn't, I will definitely attach it to this one. That um, I recorded it a few weeks back. Gun violence is something we're going to have to tackle or get used to and we're going to have to make that decision soon because I'm telling you one of the things that I brought out in the um in the um 
and I'm sorry for that background noise. I'm in an apartment. There is no um, soundproofing. It's just me living life. Um, one of the things that I pointed out in the non-released Uvalde episode was the fact that someday, and I fear very soon, and by the way, look, here's the funny thing, before I tell you this, and it's not funny, but when, it's a, it's a black saying, um, I've had this thought, I, I had a dream back in 2020, I'm sorry, not 2020, the year 2000, which led me to start writing a story surrounding what I'm about to talk to you about. And I pray every time I hear about these gun, these, these mass shootings that this does not come true. Someday in the near future, I'm going to say in the next 10 years, I'd probably say in the next 8, there's going to come a day when there's a mass domestic terror attack with guns and possibly other weaponry on a school. And that is my fear. Now, I did not have cause to really vocalize that fear broadly until the shooting in Buffalo. When his manifesto and communications revealed that the group that he was working with, he, by the way, is, as I pointed out in the non-released Uvalde episode, if we call him a lone shooter, or excuse me, a lone wolf, we have to understand that a lone wolf still comes from a pack. The communications and manifesto suggested that targets could be soft like schools. And if you do not think that there are white supremacist myth, excuse me, white supremacist myth subscribers, who hate black and brown people enough to go into areas where black and brown people's young congregate to annihilate them, to show who's boss, you have not been paying attention to American history. What the, I mean, the shooting in Florida, I thought would get people's attention. It was a bunch of white kids. What's going to happen if a group of masked gunmen run into a black school or a brown school and kill a hundred kids? Or they storm a, a, a black church and kill 50 to 100 parishioners? You want to talk about civil war? Because this was, that was part of the dream that I had. There were multiple mass attacks on black and brown structures. Killing hundreds of black and brown people, injuring a few thousand. 
And black folks and brown folks got together and said no more. We dealing with this. And they sparked it off. My father used to say, Lord help white people when black people have enough. Because there ain't nothing they gonna do to stop us. I don't care how many police they got, how much military they got. Once when black folks have enough, it's done. It's done. I fear this coming true. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can always reach out to me. Support my work. PayPal me. Cash app. CWB podcast. I've been waiting for something to happen. Cash app. PayPal. Both of them the same. With the blood and the ink of the headline. I pray that that dream never comes true. And I pray that my fears are not warranted. I am your brother, my Berenice. Until the next I've been waiting for something to happen for a week or a month or a year. There's a shadow on the faces of the men who sent the guns to the wars that are fought in places where their business interest runs on the radio talk shows and the TV you hear one thing again and again how the USA stands for freedom and we come to the aid of a friend but who are the ones that we call our friends these governments killing their own or the people who find they can't take anymore and they pick up a gun or a brick or a stone and there are